play and stay on Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Stand up paddleboarding, hiking, great restaurants and breweries. I'll tell you more about your next vacation destination later in the show. This is your last meal. I'm your host, Rachel Bell, and every episode I interview a celebrity about what they would want to eat for their last meal, and then we explore the history of that food, the culture, and whatever else we can cram into 30 minutes. Today on the program, chef, restaurateur, TV personality, cookbook author, and philanthropist, Mario Batali. What's your dog's name? My dog's name is Willie Nelson Batali. <laughs> Does he have little braids? He, no, he has red hair just like Willie Nelson, though. I'll show you a picture. I'll show you a picture later, but... Uh, he looks remarkably like Willie Nelson, down to the little soul patch. <laughs> and we don't coif him at all. He naturally looks like him. That's just how he looks. He's just not uh, hes not allowed to smoke weed in the house. Mario recently had the honor of cooking President Obama's final state dinner at the White House. And we're definitely going to talk with him about that later. We'll also hear from a former White House chef who cooked for both Bush administrations and the Clintons, which I like to think of as a little Clinton sandwich with Bush for bread. But right now, we're going to jump headfirst into the big question. Well, let's talk about the the reason that I made you come here today. Okay. Uh, your last meal. What would your last meal be? Well, I must point out that given everything in the world, I would honestly say that my last meal, the company might be more important than the food. Mm. But that said, I do have food already thought out just in case. Yeah. Um, my last meal would have – it has to be in a specific place. It has to be on the – Amalfi Coast with my feet dangling into the water. Hmm. Um, it starts with uh, fresh mozzarella and tomatoes and basil. And then it goes to alici marinati, <clears throat> which are the marinated fresh anchovies. Kind of like white anchovies. You see them here. But there they're not quite as white. They're not as bleached by the um, acid. Then I would have what's called a bis. Are you familiar with a bis of pasta? No. It's two different pastas, one after another. I would start with a, a, a it's a noodle that whose name is escaping me right now, but it's made it's made with pecorino and it's made with flour and it's made with eggs. And we serve them with uh, zucchini and botarga. Huh. And then the next one would be uh, spaghetti or linguine tossed with whatever fruit the amount they have, but they all have to be fresh. So it would be like probably linguine and maybe uh, with scampi and clams. And then my next course would be a whole grilled fish or a grigliata mista of fish. All of these courses would have a separate bottle of white wine, all of the kind of Fiano region of where we are there. And then dessert would just be um, a single scoop of lemon sorbet and a single scoop of vanilla gelato because that's a creamsicle and that's what I want to go out on. Oh, an Italian creamsicle. Exactly. Creamsicolata. Exactly. Oh, man. So much to work with. Mario's five-course Italian meal. Okay, so here's a little bit about my process. So after I interview someone about their last meal, my brain just kind of starts lighting up and spinning and trying to figure out what angle I want to take. Like, what part of this interview is the most interesting? What is the most fun thing to research? What food would be the most interesting to look into historically? Uh, and this one was hard for me because the foods that he chose... Just didn't stick. Like, he hmm. wants a grilled fish. Like, 
the history of grilled fish. There's just not really anything there. Uh, my first instinct was to go into the history of the creamsicle because remember he mentioned he wanted uh, two different scoops of I think one was sorbetto and the other one was gelato and and I'm doing a terrible Italian accent. Uh, so I got in touch with the popsicle people who never got back to me, but I did learn through their website that popsicle is a proper noun. It's a name brand and on the popsicle website they have an entire page dedicated to trademark so uh, you want to hear a little bit of this? I do. This is crazy. Okay. So after each name that I'm going to say here, there's like a little, you know, R with the circle around it, registered trademark. The Popsicle, Creamsicle, Fudgesicle, and Yosicle trademark should never be used as nouns. For example, it is not correct to say, quote, I'd like a Popsicle. It is correct to say, quote, I'd like a Popsicle ice pop. <clears throat> because that's what people say. Rachel, I cut myself. May I have a Band-Aid brand adhesive? You can, registered trademark. It also said that you should never use popsicle, creamsicle, fudgesicle, or yosicle in the plural form. It says it is not correct to say I love popsicles. It is correct to say I love popsicle ice pops. Careful, kids. You go out and you get a popsicle, and the next thing, you're slapped with a lawsuit. Anyway, I decided to drop that creamsicle idea, and I just started thinking about Italy and Italian food and how much Americans love Italy and love Italian food. Mario is Italian-American, and he has an almost indescribable connection to the country. You are Italian, and you have this Italian experience. What is it, though, about that food and culture that resonates for you? I feel like some people will go to a country and just connect. Right. Well, that happened to me, that's for sure. When you get to Italy and, and scratch just below the surface, what you realize is there's a feeling of authenticity that isn't based on trying to impress anybody. When you eat pappardelle with peas made by uh, a woman of a certain age, say much older than 60, in a little trattoria outside of, Emilia, outside of Bologna in Emilia-Romagna, she doesn't care that you're impressed. She's doing it because in her mind, that pappardella is perfect. The only sauce she's putting on is butter and a little Parmigiano cheese. And the pea is expressing its pea-ness. It's all about using the least amount of ingredients, doing the best thing that they can do. And they're not trying to jazz you up. You know, a, a, an American cook going over there would say, well, why don't we put some smoked ricotta on that and do a little uh, charred eggplant and all these other things. And they're like, no, no, no. Less is more. I'm the only fourth grader in the room when you said P-ness. Yeah, I know. Well, and then I'm like, <laughs> But I think P-ness is when you, when, you, when you have to spell it, P-E-N-E-S-S. -S. Right, exactly. Yeah, it doesn't go as I well verbally. Like that <laughs> I do too. So many Americans travel to Italy, and of course we love Italian food so much that we've basically adopted it as our own cuisine. I mean, what's more American than a pizza party at a slumber party? By the way, I just have to say that my two very favorite words in the English language put after each other are pizza party. Doesn't that just sound so good? Pizza party. Makes me so happy. When the moon hits your eye like a bigger pizza pie, that's amore. So I started thinking about Italian-American food and culture. The Sopranos, the red and white checkered tablecloths, the spaghetti and meatballs, which, by the way, you will not find that dish in Italy. Spaghetti and meatballs is an Italian-American dish at its core. And all of this led me to perhaps the most iconic Italian-American food of all. Hello, may I come in? I am Chef Boyardi. Perhaps you have seen my picture on Chef Boyardi products at your grocers. Today I want to tell you about a wonderful dinner for three. A dinner that only costs about 15 cents a serving. It's my own Chef Boyardi spaghetti dinner with meat sauce or mushroom sauce. Growing up, 
I lusted after Chef Boyardee. We were not allowed to have this. Maybe once or twice I had a can of Chef Boyardee, and I thought it was so delicious. Ravioli in a can, spaghetti in a can, so glamorous. For some people in this country, Chef Boyardee may have been their introduction into Italian cuisine. But did you know that Chef Boyardee was a real, live Italian chef? He's an actual person. I did not know that. That was him in the commercial that I played. So in 1914, when Chef Boyardee was 16, not yet a chef, he came to the United States from Italy. He arrived at Ellis Island by ship, and uh, his name is Hector Boyardee. That is his face on the Chef Boyardee can wearing the white chef's hat. And Boyardee was actually spelled B-O-I-A-R-D-I. Boyardi. Uh, but when he started canning his pasta, he changed the spelling to what you see today so that Americans could properly pronounce it. The Chef Boyardee brand is now 88 years old, and it's now owned by ConAgra Foods. And here to tell us about the man behind the can of ravioli is communications manager Dan Skinner. Hector Boyardee was born in North, Northwest Italy in 1897. Born in a little town called Piacenza and actually got some work uh, as a chef before he immigrated to America. He came to the United States in 1914 and has a really fascinating culinary background. He started in New York City working in the Plaza Hotel, uh, got his kind of formal culinary training there and actually became head chef of that hotel. And one of the signature accomplishments for Hector as a young chef was he catered the wedding reception for President Woodrow Wilson uh, in that kind of 19-teens time frame around there. And then during the uh, 1920s, he, with uh, his brothers, moved to Cleveland, and he was uh, looking to open a restaurant. And so together they opened a restaurant in Cleveland in 1924. Uh, the name of that restaurant was Giordano d'Italia, which means uh, the Italian garden. People love the food so much, they started asking Chef Boyardee if they could buy his sauce. So back in 1928, he started selling his meat sauce in empty milk jugs with spaghetti on the side so people could assemble the meal at home. That kind of takeout, if you will, became more popular than the sit-down restaurant itself. So, so he and his brother kind of thought, hey, we might have something here in kind of the prepared pasta business opportunity. And that's kind of how the idea for what became the Chef Boyardee company uh, came to be. Ten years later, in 1938, the Boyardi brothers moved the operation to Milton, Pennsylvania, so they could be closer to the tomato farms that they used to make their tomato sauce. Hector actually started a mushroom farm. So in 1952, the mushroom plant that was in Milton, Pennsylvania, was the largest of its kind in the U.S. He was growing one million pounds of mushrooms a year. Uh, and then in terms of like importing cheese, he was one of the first importers of Italian cheeses to the the U.S. at one point, the Chef Boyardee Company was the country's largest importer of Parmesan cheese. The Chef Boyardee brand no longer uses mushrooms in their products, but they do still operate out of Milton, Pennsylvania. That's really cool. Uh, there's been like families who have been working there for generations. It's is one of those true? old school American, yeah, like f success stories. Yeah, it is definitely the American dream. Hector, whose name actually wasn't Hector. He had some more Italian name. Hector Boyardee comes to America and makes us all eat. Spaghetti in a can. <laughs> now, at the time Chef Boyardee opened his restaurant, French food was all the rage in America, and Italian was still kind of a novelty. So many people's first experience eating Italian cuisine was eating Chef Boyardee's food. How did Chef Boyardee influence Americans as far as introducing Italian food into everyday cuisine? You, know, you could say he was one of the first celebrity chefs. I and mean, then if we look at all the 
people that are on Food Network and, and on TV today and, and have those credentials as a celebrity chef. He was one of the originals in that regard as somebody who you know, certainly at the time when he was appearing in the television advertising got a lot of name recognition but was somebody who could make the, the rightful claim that this was pasta that he had developed and a recipe that he had developed. I think what Hector was able to do was kind of bring that popularity of Italian food and, and bring it to a larger audience. I love this. Chef Weirdy was pretty much the Mario Batali of his time. Whammo. See, that's how you make a connection on a podcast, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Chef Weirdy passed away in 1985 in Parma, Ohio. How appropriate is that? This Italian guy lived and died in a town named after a real Italian city. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Mario Batali will tell us all about his recent experience cooking at the White House. If you're a fan of naturally gorgeous, off-the-beaten-path vacation spots with small-town charm, you're going to want to plan a visit to Washington State's Kitsap Peninsula, where you can grab a scoop of homemade ice cream and stroll around the adorable European seaside village of Paulsbow, or walk on the ferry in Seattle and get off in downtown Bainbridge Island. And May is the perfect month to visit Bremerton or Silverdale, where you can get out of the city and into the forest in just 15 minutes for a beautiful hike. Enjoy a farm-to-table meal at Bremerton's Restaurant Lola, a Black-owned business. I really need to make the trip out there for their Creole brunch. And in the morning, stop by Saboteur Bakery for croissants that are so flaky and buttery, you'll think you're in Paris. There's also a gorgeous golf course in the middle of the forest and there are several naval museums in Bremerton. Go to visitkitsap.com slash yourlastmeal to learn more. That's K-I-T-S-A-P. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Play and stay on the Kitsap Peninsula, the natural side of the Puget Sound. Last month in October, Mario Batali cooked the very last day dinner of the Obama presidency. The president was hosting Italian Prime Minister Matteo Renzi and his wife for dinner. And they presumably chose him to cook the meal because of his Italian-American roots. And Mario used all American ingredients to make an Italian meal. Can you talk about the menu? And did you choose it? I understand that the first lady has a lot of input. She has all the input. Basically, um, we did annulotti of sweet potatoes with brown butter and sage. Then we did a frise salad with roasted Hubbard squash, dusted in fennel pollen and finished with arrope and uh, pecorino di New York. What's arrope? Arrope is a preserved pumpkin traditional to Spanish cooking. Oh. It comes with this crazy delicious syrup that we drizzled on the plate, too. Nice. Then we did a beef bracciola modern style where we, we took tenderloin of uh, Creekstone beef, really delicious, and put uh, brazola and fontina and toasted breadcrumbs and herbs inside and then just kind of seared it in the pan. So it got almost like this frico-y crust of cheese on the outside top of the beef, but still medium rare steak. And then a green apple crostata with buttermilk gelato and thyme-scented caramel. Yes, it was a presidential dinner. I'm quite <laughs> pleased about the entire thing. That's why you say it so exactly. poetically. Exactly. I, I just loved it. And they were just happy. And then Gwen Stefani comes out and sings. And everything's like, yeah, we're at the White House. Of course Gwen Stefani's singing. Why not? It's your new life. Exactly. It is a very uncommon thing to cook for a head of state. Very few people get the opportunity, and even fewer are the number of folks who are entrusted with supplying world leaders and their families with three square meals a day. But Chef John Moeller knows exactly what that's like. Chef Moeller was a White House chef from 1992 to 2005, and he served three families, two Bush, one Clinton. 
so what were your cooking obligations? How many meals were you cooking? What were you doing for the family and then the big events? Well, it varied every single week. I mean, we, we were private chefs. We took care of the family and their, their personal guests. So breakfast, lunch, and dinner, we covered all the shifts and were there to take care of their needs and then all the official functions that go on there. And that could be a breakfast over in the Oval Office or in the main house. Uh, it could be a breakfast, lunch, a dinner, a cocktail reception, a picnic on the south ground, of course, the state, state dinners. All that came out of our kitchen. Once we would get word from the social office would direct to us, say, hey, these are the events coming up. We need menus for them. And then we would write menus and send them over to uh, the office of the First Lady. And I found some pretty neat little tidbits when I was doing some research on presidents and White House chefs. So we all know that the first President Bush hated broccoli, hated broccoli. And we know that Ronald Reagan had jelly beans stashed all over the White House. Bill Clinton loved McDonald's before he became a vegan. But maybe you didn't know that in 1939, FDR gave King... Oh, God, what is V16? Six. Six. Okay. Uh Oh, God, don't challenge me. Roman numerals. (laughs) Next thing you know, you'll be setting my watch in military time. Which Super Bowl is it? (laughs) I can't tell. I adjust a bunch of symbols. (laughs) But did you know that in 1939, FDR gave King George VI and Queen Elizabeth of England their very first hot dogs? Can you imagine serving royalty a hot dog? These people did not even know how to hold a hot dog. It was so unfamiliar to them. Here are my top three fun historical weird presidential food facts. Number three, George Washington loved cherry pie and he loved his hooch. He drank all day. He drank all day long. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. It wasn't complete without a little alcohol. Number two, James Garfield's favorite meal was squirrel soup. And number one, Richard Nixon, so gross, had cottage cheese with ketchup drizzled on top for breakfast all the time. This is like a trashier version of that classic old school low calorie diner meal, cottage cheese and tomato slices. I always wonder who orders that. I imagine it's an old woman named Bernice. (laughs) That's who I always think of. In a bonus track that isn't so fun, so it doesn't belong on my top three most fun facts, uh, starting with George Washington, slaves prepared the White House meals. And after slavery was abolished, African-Americans still remained the cooks for years. George Washington's cook was named Hercules, only known as Hercules, as far as I could tell. And the history books say that he was an amazing cook. He actually, uh, working in the White House, had the ability to walk around town freely, which most slaves didn't. Uh, And he escaped to freedom from Philadelphia in March of 1797, right at the end of Washington's presidency. But back to Chef John, he says the biggest change moving from George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush to the Clintons was having a kid living in the White House. Chelsea was only 12 years old when her dad took office and the staff definitely had to take their cooking down a notch. Well, in the beginning, to me, even a couple of weeks after President First Lady Clinton got into office there, they were out for dinner. Five o'clock, uh, Chelsea calls me in the kitchen and said, John, she says, I'm really in the mood for some mac and cheese. And I said, well, sure, I can take care of that. So, yeah, I made, up, made it from scratch, and they bechamel sauce, had some nice cheddar cheeses, and whooped it up and sent it up to her. And then she called me afterwards and said, you know, it was all well and good, but next time can have the one from the box, you know. And even though her dad was president, Chelsea Clinton was still a regular kid and she wanted to do regular kid stuff on the weekends. She might have been like there again too, like 15 or 16. And it was a Saturday afternoon. The butler came down with a list of ingredients and said, uh, Chelsea's up in the second floor kitchen and would uh, like to bake something. Here's a list of ingredients. That's all like, you know, two and a half cups of flour, 
you know, a teaspoon of this, teaspoon of that. And so I measured it all out, put a neat little container on a silver tray and gave it to the butler to take back up. And then she, uh, the butler came back down a couple of minutes with the same thing and said she'd like to measure it out herself. I said, well, he didn't tell me that. You know I mean? He just gave me a list of ingredients. So I dumped everything in bigger bowls, put the measuring uh, devices on the, t- on the tray and sent them up to them. And, uh, and then she, uh, she, she made a, a little chocolate cake that afternoon, you know. So I'm sure it's pretty dreamy to uh, be in the White House and have a professional cooking staff and all of your meals are made for you and it's delicious. But if you like to cook or, you know, you're not used to this kind of lifestyle, I'm sure that sometimes maybe the president or the first lady would maybe want to cook a meal for themselves. Was that something that ever happened? Would any of those presidents or their wives get in the kitchen and actually make a meal? Nah. <laughs> it's pretty easy just to pick up the phone and say, hey, we're ready for dinner, you know. Uh, I think within the first month or so, uh, it was on a Sunday morning, and the word came down that Chelsea was not feeling good. So Mrs. Clinton said, hey, can you just send me up a, a two eggs and a fry pan? And she scrambled some eggs and gave it to uh, Chelsea one day. And that was probably about the closest I came, I saw anybody ever cooking anything there, you know. They're, they got pretty busy lives. And, you know, here you got basically 80 people at your disposal. I mean, there's five chefs. There's two, two, well, three chefs and th- two pastry chefs. And, you know, there's five butlers. There's five maids. You have floral department. You know, everybody's at your disposal. Uh, you have some, you know, electrician can come up and fix your remote control for you if you got a problem, which has happened on, it, on the occasion there, you know. And uh, to have all that at your disposal, it's not bad to kind of sit back and uh, let these people do their job, you know. And it gives us something to do, too, there, you know. Right. Was there a dish that you made for any of these presidents that they particularly liked, that they were really excited about? Boy, yeah, there's quite a few. You know, what was the biggest challenge being a White House chef is coming up with new menu items because you have to send customers every day. So one day I was trying to think about, you know, what, what should I do with this chicken? You know, I've got to do something different than what I have been because it is the uh, the most popular protein in the White House for all of them for the most part, you know. So I thought about this chicken pot pie recipe that it, they used to make here in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And it's not a pot pie where the crust is on the outside, the crust is on the inside. You make a dumpling dough and simmer that inside it and have all the vegetables and noodles and everything, and it's, it's quite good. So I made that up, and it was, Clinton was in. It was his second time, so President Clinton was uh, getting ready for dinner, and then I gave it to the butler in a big rim bowl, and as he walked into the dining room, I stood at the door to look into the little window, and the butler immediately came back, and the door opens up, and I see the president there at the table, and he lo- he's leaning over the bowl, basically wolfing it down, and he looks up to me and said, John, this is the kind of food I like. And I said, yes, sir. That became in the rotation. You know? And then when the, the Bushes came in, it was an evening where George W. was eating by himself. And the first lady was traveling somewhere. I made the exact same thing. I put it in the same type of bowl, gave it to the butler. He went into the dining room. The door opens up. I see the president there sitting where President Clinton was sitting. And he's leaning over the bowl, basically wolfing it down. He looks up to me. He, goes, he gives me a thumbs up and says, John, this is the kind of food I like. He did the exact same thing that Clinton did. And it just goes to show you. I mean, good comfort food is still good comfort food. Mm-hmm. I love this. It's like a little lesson. No matter what your politics, everyone loves chicken pot pie. I love chicken pot pie. I want to try the one one that he is talking about. It sounds very unique with noodles in there. I was drooling having him talk about that. So if you're a presidential chef, obviously you're kind of a good cook. Like it's not easy to get this job. You probably have good schooling. You have a lot of experience. You have to be good at what you do. A lot of chefs, I think, have ego. You know, you're cooking, especially after you start cooking, like I cook for the president. I make all of these fabulous dishes. So it has to be a little bit of a punch in the gut uh, when somebody in the White House doesn't love your cooking. The main thing is you have to check your ego at the door because um, you, you are in private residence. You know, you are a private chef, and it's also a banquet house. And uh, even though you can come up with ideas and present them, if they want something different, you have to lean into what they want, you know. 
there's a bit of a story when on Walter's very first day there, I was there that morning, Chelsea called down and said, hey, I want some pancakes. So I grabbed the box down, I started measuring it out, and Walter said, uh, hey, I saw some maple syrup down in the uh, in the refrigerator. I said, don't worry about that, uh, just get the bottle stuff and heat you know, But I, let me heat this up, this is better. I said, I know, but she likes the bottle. But it's maple syrup, he, he argued with me. I said, okay, just go with it. <laughs> So we sent it up, and then a butler came back down with us and said, Where, where's her syrup at? You know she doesn't like this. And I turned to her and said, Walter, you, you know and I know that that's probably the better item. But remember, we're in somebody's house here, and uh, I went through this already <laughs> a year or so ago. Uh, this is what she likes. She doesn't care for the uh, maple syrup, so we're here to, to take care of them. So that was actually kind of an eye-opening experience for him on that very first day to learn something like that. And it, it, and that may be kind of small, but it's big. Of course, you know, it kind of hurt me a little bit when she wanted the box mac and cheese, but what the heck? I mean, I, I had kids that uh, I had to live through those years, too. Yeah, I'm a White House chef, but, you know, it's, it's what kids do, you know. It doesn't hurt your feelings, you know. When we come back, more with Chef Batali. listening to your last meal you might like watching my new tv show the nosh with rachel bell we just wrapped up season one so there are four tasty episodes ready for you to binge at cascadepbs.org in episode one i convince an east coast skeptic that seattle now has fantastic bagels and in the season finale we go truffle hunting just about an hour outside of seattle episodes are a quick bite just eight and a half minutes long. So grab a snack and cozy up with the nosh. Available anytime, anywhere at CascadePBS.org or find a link in the show notes. So now we know what Mario Batali would want to eat for his last meal. But as he said himself, the company is just as important, if not more important than the cuisine. So who would Mario Batali trust to cook his final feast? Wow. Um, President Obama. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Yep. I want President Obama and Michelle Obama and, and no, I I would say, and also Gwen Stefani. All three of them should cook my last meal. Wouldn't that be a kick? It would. On the Amalfi Coast? What do you think each of them would be best at in the kitchen? I bet the president would make the mean bruschetta. Uh Uh-huh. I bet... um, Mrs. Obama would make the pasta, and Gwen Stefani, I'm pretty sure, can cook anything, so she could take care of the fish and the desserts. I mean, she's Italian too, right? Exactly. Stefani, so why not? Right. Yeah. She's also California-y, you know, that total vibe. They get it. Less is more. Good olive oil. It's like singing the plants. Like, maybe if she sang to the food, yes. it would just taste better. It definitely would. Mario has a brand new cookbook out, and it's not just Italian food. It's called Big American Cookbook, 250 Favorite Recipes from Across the USA. So I was looking to your new cookbook, and I was interested because, you know, it's not an Italian cookbook. It's a super Americana cookbook. And I loved looking through and just seeing the super local recipes to each region. Did you just travel around specifically for this cookbook? How did you gather up all of these recipes? I was actually, it's been collected over the last 20 years when I've been on book tour, kind of shucking and jiving my fancy high-end Italian books. I often went to like the local places just to see what what it was that made the wind smell like it does on Des Moines on a Thursday afternoon. What does the wind smell like in Des Moines? Depends on the day, sometimes like leaves, but okay. sometimes, you know, like... I thought maybe the, hot some, beef. Right, or like a, <clears throat> there's something called the Iowa Loose Meat Sandwich, which I think is fantastic. 
Well, from Roseanne. That's what Roseanne ate on the show. Remember she opened a loose meat sandwich no. shop? No. Yeah, that was like in the later oh, episode. See, I missed out on all the good TV. Ah, oh, shucks. But I love that sandwich. And I think when I travel around, what I saw wasn't fancy dishes, but dishes that spoke to me of the songs that you know live in Americans' hearts. And that's what I was most interested in is these traditional dishes that you can buy all the ingredients at the grocery store. They don't require any special equipment or even any real mastery of technique, but they do need you to kind of pay attention. And I think when you cook through them, pay careful attention because if if you just brown the meat a little bit, it's good. But if you brown it until it's crackling and it makes a big difference, like I suggest in the book, it's an entirely different taste. And even the most mundane, simple dishes, like a hanky-panky from Cleveland. What's that? It's That's where you take 50% pork, uh, spicy Italian sausage, 50% hamburger, cook it until it's crackling, drain out most of the fat, add some ricotta and add some gouda. And then allow it to cool, then spread it on black bread that's been toasted and put it under the broiler until it melts up. And you're like, I don't care that the Browns are going to lose every single game this year. I am loving this dish. Wow. I will eat something just if it has a fun name. Like, I don't care if inside it's like dog poop. I will eat a hanky-panky. Well, there's no dog poop in this recipe. (laughs) So good. You're safe. Thank you. That is the tagline. Exactly. Dog poop no dog free. poop free since 2016. That's right. And when you look at the cover of this new cookbook, you see Mario on the cover, and it's a very, very familiar sight. You see his red hair pulled back into a ponytail, which I have to mention he was wearing a scrunchie when he came in studio. Oh, a scrunchie. Uh, he's wearing a fleece vest, shorts, and of course those shoes. Are you so tired of people asking you about your orange Crocs? No. No? It doesn't bother me. It doesn't? No. They're funny. Even Michelle Obama comments on them. So, <laughs> you wore this to, that, to the course, White House? Of course. I wear only one look. <laughs> it took me years to develop this highly refined, completely haute couture look. So Runway I'm never going to drop it, even for the president. Right. So you've got the vest, the shorts, the orange Crocs, the ponytail. This is your signature. That's what I got. And do you ever, you know, do kind of the Mr. Rogers, you go home and you like take off these shoes and you put on another pair of Crocs for the house or something? No, I have a pair of slippers for the house, just like Mr. Rogers. Oh, that's so cute. (laughs) In your own imaginary neighborhood. Exactly. Yeah. Mario doesn't always live in his own imaginary neighborhood. In fact, he comes from the same place that this show does, both born in Washington State. Well, you didn't grow up a fancy guy, did you? No, I grew up in Washington State. We were like hop growers, and we went to the Lower Valley to buy vegetables to pickle into our antipasto and help my Aunt Marty make dilly beans, and we were big picklers. Huh. For us, that was it, our blackberry pie. You know, for us, we'd go down Dash Point Road and pick all the blackberries for free that you could, then come home and make 50 pies, one for every Sunday of the year, except for two, obviously. It's so Americana. And then make blackberry jam. And that was just like what we thought. When I think of today, my favorite dessert to this day still is plain fresh blackberries and vanilla ice cream. That's what I want. That's what America wants. It's the new white meat. (laughs) Blackberries are the new white meat? That's right. Blackberries (laughs) are the new white meat. He has spoken, America. That's right. Buy stock and berries. It's funny. It's like all of these hipster foods that didn't used to be hipster foods, you know, pickling everything and everything in a mason jar and, you know, pie shops on every corner. But how is food viewed in the Batali family? You know, when we were growing up, cooking and food was always part of our daily experience. It wasn't like special. It wasn't sacred. It wasn't Jeremiah Tower meets Alice Waters. It was just kind of what we did. And it was part of our leisure activities. You know, we would go to the Lower Valley in, in, in Yakima and get the market vegetables and make antipasto or, you know, make the pies or... We just did that. Like, that was what we had to do. And it wasn't because we were, I don't, I just think it's because we thought it would taste better, but it was also part of the culture of all of the family. So when I was getting ready to get out of high school and go to college, my mom suggested that, hey, why don't you, um, 
Why don't you go to cooking school instead of college? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I had just seen Animal House and I needed to participate in something like that. There was no way I was going to skip that stuff. And I'm glad I did. It seems like a professional kitchen is Animal House. You've got the booze, you've got the brewery. I think that you basically had your fraternity experience there. Yeah, well, you know, that was then. And now it's a much different world in, in a world where... Almost anybody can be sued for just about anything. You have to be much different. You have to treat people much differently now in the professional kitchens than you used to. And it used to be that, you know, there was beatings or there was violence or threats of violence. And now in a day, it's a much more professional workplace because it's a different category of person. Keep in mind, when I became a chef, it was not cool. You know, in 1978, 1979, 1980, when I was going to college, becoming a chef was the last thing you did after you got out of the military before you went to jail. And it wasn't like your mom would say, oh, my son's becoming a chef. It's more like, my son's looking for work. (laughs) And speaking of sons, Mario is the father of two boys. He has two adult boys. And just because you're one of the most well-known chefs in the world does not mean that your kids want to eat everything you make. I mean, that has to be humbling right there. You are a celebrity chef. You're on TV. You have a million cookbooks and restaurants. And your kids are like, Maybe a grilled cheese sandwich. Remember Chelsea Clinton and her box mac and cheese and her, I don't know, Mrs. Butterworth's or it could be Aunt Jemima. It was Mrs. Butterworth. It's a mystery we don't know how to solve. (laughs) Uh, So how did Mario successfully navigate his children's fickle taste buds? My biggest hit was always breakfast. Ever since my children were able to even talk, there was the Batali Brothers breakfast menu. And it came with a complimentary vitamin and a glass of juice. And they could choose anything off of the breakfast menu that they wanted. And I would make it like a short order cook every day because that's effectively what you end up doing as a parent, making short order cooking. And you can argue with it and make it a problem. Say, everyone's eating the same thing. And they're not. They're not eating the same thing. So at breakfast, we got to do that. And say cliche parent things like, kitchen's closed. That's right. And yeah. it's like, it never was. And if you want a teddy bear pancakes, <laughs> I will make you teddy bear pancakes. Now they're 18 and 20. They have very little interest in going and having me cook at home, they're like, Dad, can we get a reservation at Bobo tonight for me and my friends? And I'm like, yes, you can only have one cocktail and then drink paired wines. And they're like, one cocktail? Come on, we're going to do shots. I'm like, you're going to the wrong place. No shots at my restaurant. And we're only serving you teddy bear pancakes That's off right, the teddy menu. Bear pancakes. Mm-hmm. All right, we're getting ready to wrap up the episode. So here's where the after school special stuff starts. If you're listening to this and you're interested in being a chef or you're someone who's starting out as a chef, here's a little advice straight from the mouth of Mario. If anybody asked me how to become the best cook you can be, I would say cook a lot, go get a liberal arts degree from some kind of a college, and then go you know, approach your craft in, in that way. Go to cooking school after college, but become more interesting and interested by studying something maybe not so specifically important to your career, but important to your own mind. And that was Mario Batali's last meal. Thanks to Chef John Moeller with State of Affairs Catering, Dan Skinner with ConAgra Foods, and thanks to my producer, Aaron Mason. Original music, as always, by Prom Queen. And if you like what you hear, hey, treat yourself. Subscribe on iTunes. You won't be sorry. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. Mario Batali. Mario Batali. <laughs> uh-huh. Mario Batali. Mario Batali. Do it uh do it one more time from the beginning. Okay. Why? It's perfect. Yeah. It's like a newborn yep. baby. Yep.